Welcome to episode 188 of the Rugby League Republic podcast with your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. In this special episode of the podcast, we bring you the next installment of our special series, Almost Fairy Tales. In this book three of Almost Fairy Tales, we explore the 1992 to 93 St. George Dragons and their Almost Fairy Tale in one of the greatest grand finals uh, in the history of rugby league. Join us as we build a rugby league community for all. The Rugby League Republic podcast starts right now. Right, welcome to episode 188 of the Rugby League Republic podcast. We aim to bring you the everyday fans' perspective on the greatest game of all, Rugby League. This is Rugby League for the people. Tish, over to you to explain to us what Almost Fairy Tales is about. Yes, well, welcome, uh, Dr. T, to uh, this special episode of the Rugby League Republic and uh, welcome all of our fans and listeners. Uh, yeah, you're in for a treat today uh, because this is our... You know, this is our, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, this is part of our Almost Fairy Tales series. A brief reminder of what this special series is all about. Uh, each episode um, of this series, will we call it books, and it will involve, you know, exploring a, a fairy tale that almost came true in the history of rugby league but didn't. Um, and we explore what were the key turning points, what went wrong, as well as the aftermath of this almost uh, fairy tale. So our third book today explores the 1992 and 1993 St. George Dragons who made it to two consecutive grand finals, uh, the team that almost won a grand final and probably deserved to win at least one of these grand finals, but thwarted by the brilliance of the Brisbane Broncos and perhaps even more. Over to you, Dr. T. All right, so I'll just explain the structure of these fairy tales. Uh, look, fairy tales usually have some set structures. Those of you like me who are into uh, Disney films, we know what these structures are about. But I just thought I'd quickly describe <laughs> it so you, you could understand uh, how it makes sense and how we've kind of um, used it almost like a six tackles structure here. So each of the stages of a fairy tale has a bit of a chapter uh, and like a chapter structure. So chapter one is called exposition. This is where we basically set the scene and describe some of the main characters and the main things you need to know about in the fairy tale. Chapter two is a turning point. So this is where, you know, usually it describes the main conflict in the rugby league context. It might be what is a, what is where the whole game changed or where the fairy tale was turned on its head for some reason. Chapter three is rising action. This is where we describe the series of conflicts or situations that lead to the climax, which is chapter four. And that's where we describe the most intense moment in the story. And that's usually, uh, you know, usually the pointy end of a grand final. Um, chapter five is fall in action. This is where we describe all of the action following the climax, uh, usually the aftermath of a grand final. And chapter six finally is a resolution. This is where we really talk about the conclusion, the aftermath of the story, the long-term aftermath and the legacy 
that's left behind with uh, whatever happened in that almost fairy tale. So as I said, it's very similar to our six tackle structure. So those of you who listen to our regular weekly podcast will uh, hopefully understand we're trying to keep it manageable. We can only think, we can only count to six. So <laughs> six chapters only here. But look, without any further ado, let us begin the almost fairy tale story for today. Here is book three, the 1992-93 St. George Dragons. All right, so chapter one, exposition. So this is the 1992 St. George Dragons, no match for the historic Broncos. So we're going to begin this fairy tale in the 1992 Grand Final. So... In their fifth year of this competition, Brisbane finally put together uh, the right combination uh, to reach this grand final. So after so many years of promising to take the Winfield Cup by storm, they finally put it together. They had big names, Langer, Renoff, Hancock, Lazarus. And finally, 1992, they were absolutely unstoppable and they won the minor premiership. And uh, not only that, they went straight uh, through to the finals and through to the grand final, and they entered the grand final as red-hot favourites. Now, joining them in this grand final was a ragtag bunch of no-names, pretty much, called the St. George Dragons. And uh, I'll just quickly go through... Uh, actually, before I go through the the, the grand final lineup, um, Tish, do you have any... Uh, is there any other context we need to set for this 1992 season heading into the grand final? Yeah, well, uh, Dr. T, this, uh, this uh, St. George side, um, you know, it kind of had some, uh, uh, it, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting side up. You know, they, they kind of, um, I think they kind of came from fourth or fifth to actually make it. Uh, they had, to, they had a, a month of football, I think, throughout the whole commentary of this game, which I watched back uh, earlier this week. You know, they kept talking about how, uh, they actually struggled to to get to the grand final. They had a couple of really close games that they had to win. Um, and in fact, uh, to to get into this grand final, they actually had to beat uh, the Illawarra Steelers in a tight one. So, um, very interesting how uh, in 1992 to get there, they uh, played the team that they'll eventually end up merging with. So that was kind of a very interesting point. And yeah, just a couple of things about their team. Um, you know, they uh, well, uh, you know. The, the, the thing that was interesting is that I think this was Brian's second second season uh, in the you know for the Dragons and uh, he had uh, gone to America and come up with ideas and uh, one of the things that I heard Laurie Daly talk about is that the Dragons in '91 and '92 were the innovators of the padded lycra spandex. Um, so this is like a uh, something that goes underneath your shorts. It's got like a bit of padding. Um, but it's basically like bike pants with padding. Have you seen those there around there, Dr. T, right? That's right, yep. Yeah. I counted at least eight Dragons players still uh, having these on during the grand final. But apparently it's a Brian Smith innovation. So uh, wow, I don't think – yeah, there you go. So and apparently he had the idea. And then apparently round one in 91, uh, well, the first time they played Canberra, uh, Laurie Daly remembers that the entire team had them on. So, um, you know, teams that uh, – yeah, wear undergarments together. 
grow <laughs> they stay together. together. <laughs> yes, yeah, stay together. <laughs> do not chafe together. <laughs> do not chafe together. So yeah, so 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 very much an anti-chafing dragons team. Um, <laughs> that's really so. fascinating about Brian Smith, and yeah, that's a thing. That's very good context to set up here in in this chapter because Brian Smith definitely, you know, going into this fairy tale, you need to keep in mind those of you who don't remember. Uh, you know, Brian Smith was very much, you know, untested in this uh, echelon of uh, coaches, first grade, um, but he was the kind of coach that, you know, definitely used his brain and was innovative and, and didn't rely on star power, didn't rely on um, the brilliance of his players. He relied on, you know, finding ways, finding anything you know, he was super competitive. Let's put it that way. Someone who's yeah. as innovative as that is super competitive and wants to get any edge that they can over their opposition, even if they know that they don't have the best players on paper and the best roster on paper. If you understand that about Brian Smith, you will understand the rest of, of this fairy tale. Um, and, and also you understand the psyche of Brian Smith because definitely uh, we're going to talk later when the fairy tale went wrong. Uh, you know, what, what was it that, uh, that people took away from that in terms of uh, Brian, the Brian Smith scenario? So, um, yeah, sorry, Tish, you were saying, is there any other kind of context you want to add here? Well, well, I think after we sort of go through the game, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll go through some of the facts about the game as well. So, yeah, oh, absolutely. All right. So, look, let me let me just jump into the uh, for those of you who want to understand how star studded. So, we're trying to set up a picture here of a star studded Brisbane Broncos uh, versus, uh, you know, not so much no names, but you know, definitely not as experienced in the representative arena uh, at the at that time. So, here we go. Let's go with the Broncos first. So. Here is the star-sided Broncos. Fullback was Julian O'Neill. This is in the grand final uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, on the wings were Michael Hancock and Willie Kahn. I mean, you know, all of them so far are Queensland representatives. Uh, Renoff, Steve Renoff in the centres and Chris Johns as his centre partner. Again, all state of origin representatives. Kevin Walters at 5'8", Alan Langer at, at uh, halfback and captain. And in the forwards, we've got at lock Terry Madison. We've got um, Alan Can and Trevor Gilmeister in the second row. And, and the props, we have Glenn Lazarus and Gavin Allen and Kerrid Walters in hooker. Uh, and in the interchange bench, we've got Mark Hone, Andrew G, John Plath, uh, Tony Curry, and of course, coached by super coach Wayne Bennett, who I believe at that time. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think had won a premiership at that point. So. No, I don't think he had, and uh, I believe he was the assistant coach to the Canberra Raiders in '87. I think it was. That is correct. Yeah, and that's as close it. as he got. Yep. So, so really, the start of an era for 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 uh, for, for, Bennett for Wayne Bennett. Yeah. Yeah, for Bennett and the Broncos, and then. Um, you know, kind of interesting lineups. The other thing that I that I kind of noticed is that they they talked a lot about, um, you know, that sorry they talked a lot about Julian O'Neill and Kevin Walters kind of being the, the 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 sort of the weak links for the Broncos, um, sort of the unproven players in these pressure pressure situations. Um, I don't think um, Walters had actually debuted for New South Wales oh, for Queensland yet, or might have come off the bench. He had had a starring role yet, so. Yep. Um, you know, now we see them as greats, but then back in this era, they were kind of like the unknown commodities 
of Brisbane. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. Like you know, like uh, they went on to be great great players. And uh, you look for the Dragons. I mean, uh, Noel Goldthorpe. Um, you know, he's a name that kind of gets lost, but uh, you know, any halfback that can play two grand finals in a row. And I think he played another one for another team like later on in his career. But um, you know, he was. I think he was only a young nineteen. You know, 19, 20 year old type halfback uh, as well. So that's obviously a massive achievement for a you know a play you know somebody in a in a spine position to be able to make it all the way there. And I think um, I think out of the lineup, the other thing that was interesting is I think Barney, David Barnicle was the only player that had any sort of grand final experience for uh, the Dragons. Meanwhile, Glenn Lazarus um, he was actually playing in his fifth grand final. And this was his fourth in a row, <laughs> so um, absolutely dominant uh, was was Glenn Lazarus, and uh, I think uh, I think people forget that as well. And interestingly enough, this happened to be Alan Langer's one hundredth uh, first grade game, so don't know how he was able to pull that off. Um, the fact he was able to do that, <laughs> um, you know, just get to uh, you know, so so first ever grand final for the Broncos. Um, you know, it is uh, Alan Lang's 100th game, but yeah, just absolutely a, a, an amazing uh, sort of stat. Um, also, notice a few, you know, f- you know, players that would have uh, gone on to become uh, well, actually failed coaches in the NRL, and Matthew Elliott and Mick Potter. Um, actually, Tony Smith as well um, is is actually a highly successful coach in the Super League, um, but but uh, was never able to, to actually coach coach a team in the uh, NRL. Well, that's so, so it, probably a good chance to segue though into into their actual dragons lineup because I haven't actually read them yet. So. Oh, okay, all right. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's all right. So let, let 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 me just go through the dragons lineup and then yeah. So the fullback was Mick Potter, as you said. Uh, the wings were Ricky Walford and Ian Heron. Centers were Mark Coyne and Graham Bradley. Five eighth was Michael Beatty at captain. And halfback was Noel Goldthorpe, as you mentioned. Uh, the lock was, uh, I think, was Jeff Hardy. Is that right? And then yeah. uh, David Barnhill, Scott Goulet in the second row. At props were Tony Priddle and Neil Tierney and Wayne Collins at hooker. And on the bench were Brad Mackay, Rex Turp, Tony Smith, and Matthew Elliott. Hmm. The Matthew Elliott. The Matthew Elliott. And yeah, Brian that's Smith, right. Brian Smith was a coach. So, um, yeah, so you were saying, so some of these players look, you know, when you look now, you look back, but even even back then, if you if you look at uh, the players with representative experience, I think, and if you look at performances as well, I think finally some of these players. I mean, yes, Alan Langer had played a hundred games only, but you know he had already dominated at Origin level and probably was the dominant Origin level player at that stage. Um, and so you know, there's it's Steve Renoff, you know. Glenn Lazarus, as you said, this was his fourth grand final in a row. So he had he had proven that you know even though he had moved from uh, one club Canberra, one successful club Canberra to another, um, he basically proved that you know wherever he went, success followed. And so you know you got all the makings there from the Broncos lineup of an absolute flogging, uh, and that was kind of the context here. The uh, both teams dominated the season. Uh, I believe uh, they, the Broncos were six clear of the Dragons in terms of the minor prim- – six points clear in terms of the minor premiership, which was three wins. Um, and then the Dragons were a couple points or a couple of uh, wins clear from the third-place team. And so when you put all that together, you think, well, this is the two team, the two best teams of the year. And obviously, 
uh, hit, the weight of history was supporting a historic Broncos win. And and look, what ended up happening was, uh, and I'll, I'll, the summary is that basically it was an initial close match, 6-4 uh, Broncos led into halftime, but obviously they ran away with it in the second half, uh, winning eventually 28-8. to and uh, it ended up being uh, for five goals, five five tries to two. So, you know, a very dominant performance there after a, a, very, a fairly sort of consistent first half and close first half. And Alan Langer, obviously, in his 100th game, winning the Clive Churchill medal. So dominating uh, and captaining the Broncos in a historic sort of win for the Broncos. Tish, you said you mentioned that you you kind of watched this very recently again to refresh your memory. This grand final, was there anything apart from look that memorable Steve Renoff length of the field try in midway through the second half? The way I remember it, uh, and certainly the way it's been communicated uh, historically, is that that was kind of uh, a pivotal moment in that grand final, and it kind of sealed the deal, and it sort of. It it uh it was the final nail in the coffin, shall we say, of the Dragons. At that point, there was no turning back. Uh, it was obvious that the Broncos had won, and uh, you know, the heads went down from the Dragons' perspective. So, Tish, is that the way you felt? What rewatching that very recently? Yeah, I actually felt that the Dragons actually came out a bit stronger than the Broncos. They uh, seemed to have the field position, but they couldn't capitalize on their change uh, on their possession and. They had a few chances, and they just yeah, they just couldn't capitalize. That was that was it. And I think I think the word I'd say is unforced errors. A lot of unforced errors by the Dragons, and then to my surprise, so, uh, somewhere halfway between, um, you know, in the in the first half, Brad McKay came onto the field, and I was thinking to myself, well, why didn't he start? And um, and then I thought, okay, uh, I assumed that perhaps, you know, Brad McKay, you know, he was just a young player who hadn't done anything, but. At this point, he had already played for Australia and he had already played for New South Wales. So we had an international um, origin player starting off the bench and he came on to replace uh, Jeff Hardy, who's a great player, don't get me wrong, um, but, but you know, wasn't, uh, hadn't had the accolades or the big game experience as what um, Brad McKay had. So I, I found that to be a little odd and interesting, uh, t- to be honest. And then, um, yeah, look, uh, the Steve Renoff try, it is... Uh, an amazing part of the grand final. It's something that gets replayed over and over again. Um, if you do actually go back and watch this game, and I highly recommend people do because it was quite entertaining. Uh, you know, it was sort of uh, back and forth the whole way, very open. Um, and, and I think the two games, even though the score lines are, are fairly different, they kind of resembled each other a lot in in many ways. But uh, but interestingly enough, there. Um, the, uh, what I was going to say is that. Uh, you know, I think Ray Ron was talking, uh, you know, about a minute or two before the Renoff uh, moment. He was talking about, uh, I think Renoff had the ball in a similar sort of position and, and Ray Ron goes, you know, and it gets the ball to Renoff and, you know, we haven't heard much of Renoff. He's, he's had a bit of a quiet game. <laughs> and then, you know, just a minute or two later when he gets the ball and absolutely just, you know, just runs, runs through and the fact that he scores a try, like we kind of remember like this being almost like a Steve Renoff game. Um, but yeah, for a long time though, the Dragons had him covered. I think it was just that, um, you know, that opportunity and, and really that play started from Julian O'Neill, uh, being able to get the ball out of the half, 
And then uh, the Broncos been able to to uh, sort of um, to sort of sweep on that opportunity. Um, you know, one of the uh, and score on that try. Uh, the other thing about the Broncos, I've just got to say, they they were a very exciting team. It was actually really highly entertaining to watch them attack. Um, I think they're probably one of the very few um, NRL sort of attack orientated teams. Uh, we get really excited when we see an attack orientated team make it to the finals. But the Broncos were definitely uh, that type of team. They weren't really renowned for their defense, even though they had an awesome defense. But their uh, their attack was was at another level in in nineteen ninety two. Yeah, and and absolutely, and I think that's the key thing to remember is that they're also entertainers. I mean, an attack oriented team. This is a team that, as you said, that Steve Renoff try kind of was a perfect example, an exemplar of the Broncos style, which was even if you're stuck in your your end of the field out from the you know your try line there's still an opportunity if you swing it wide you know there's no need to do one out you know why not try your chance give your your outside backs the confidence that they can do something and you know maybe 9 times out of 10 they won't maybe 9 times out of 10 the dragons defense had the renoff uh, steve renoff covered but that one time that one lapse of concentration led to a length of the field try and an absolutely one of the most memorable tries that you'll see in grand finals. And that's the thing with Broncos, high risk, high reward when it comes off. And it certainly came off in this occasion. Uh, Obviously, the Broncos being with that win were the second non-New South Wales team to win the premiership after the Canberra Raiders had won in 89 and 19. Obviously, Glenn Lazarus is the key link there. He was there on both of those occasions. So, look, that was Chapter 1, and so now we're going to move to Chapter 2. So after that massive performance and the Broncos finally uh, kind of meeting the weight of expectations and, and, and in a historic way in 92, then we turn to 93, and there was a slight change in 93. So Chapter 2 is about the turning point, and this is a 1993 season, a tale of redemption, possibly, in a new 10-metre rule, 10-metre uh, era. So in 93, this season was when the 10-metre rule was introduced and it required the defensive team to retreat 10 metres from where the ball is being played, which allowed more room for attacking players. So this is kind of coming at a time when the Broncos had already, uh, you know, been renowned for being uh, the attacking uh, entertainers. And there was definitely thoughts that this would actually uh, kind of enhance their uh, their their dominance. There was definitely some fears around that. So, uh, yeah, Tish. Uh, in terms of the '93 season, what other context can we provide as we head into uh, into the the '93 Grand Final, which we're going to talk about soon? Okay. Well, look. Uh, if you look back to the year 1993, what do you what What's the most memorable moments uh, of the year 1993? Well, it is the achy breaky year uh, with with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus. So I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was '93. Um, so, that, so that was probably, you know, in terms of pop culture, that was going on. But look, there was a massive war actually going on in the world of rugby league between the Brisbane Broncos and the Queensland Rugby League, the QRL. Um, actually, in between watching grand finals, I actually watched a, a season in review as well of the '93 season, and I think this was it, this must have been produced in Queensland because it was. Uh, it was, I mean, it's very much a Broncos-focused type type thing. But the situation was that, um, you know, the Queensland Rugby League, their major sponsor was Forex, and the Broncos was 
Powers Breweries, uh, which I don't think is uh, is around or any, anymore, or is sort of been absorbed into other uh, other alcoholic beverage companies. But um, there was a dispute over having uh, the use of the Suncorp Stadium for the Brisbane Broncos home games, which was uh, sort of controlled by Queensland Rugby League. So the Broncos, um, you know, they shot to fame after their 92 victory, and you know they were the hottest ticket in in Queensland. They basically took the Q. I think it's called QE2 was the name of the um, name of the uh, the stadium, yep. which they turned into the ANZ Stadium, um, and basically filled a capacity uh, to about sixty thousand, which was I think was the top capacity of this stadium. And then, uh, you know, ninety three was the season when they moved away from SunCorp uh, in protest of uh, Queensland Rugby League trying to dominate. Um, you know, not being you know uh, what Brisbane can and cannot have in terms of sponsorship. Um, so that was kind of interesting. There was a there was a, 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 a pretty much a battle between, um, you know, the QRL and, and the Brisbane Broncos throughout the whole year. Um, and look, ANZ, uh, you know, it's not a stadium a lot of people think of fondly. Of, of course, everybody thinks of Lane Park and, and Suncorp Stadium. Um, but, uh, you know, interesting, the first, first round that they had there, I think it was actually against the Eels, um, where they had almost, uh, I think they almost had double their crowd average there, like around about 48,000 uh, to an Eels-Broncos game. And, um, you know, uh, people were complaining about the, the you know, the long queues and the bathrooms and everything like this. So the Broncos, you know, throughout the whole year, they're sort of, um, you know, got this whole, you know, lingering war in the background. You know, obviously all the players uh, have also got now sponsorship endorsements as well. Uh, so they talked a lot about that in this documentary of how you sort of saw, you know, Queensland um, players everywhere, sorry, Broncos players everywhere uh, in terms of TV and sponsorships, you know, um, you know insurance companies and even Tip Top um, had a uh, Alan Langer, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, on, on their uh, on their lows as well. So it's a, it a very interesting time for the Broncos. So I suppose to the winners go the spoils because um, – you know, I don't think the Dragons got any of those type of endorsements during 1993. So um, further point to the Broncos and the Queensland Rugby League, I think the Broncos also tried to boycott their players from playing State of Origin and were quite angry when I think 11 out of the 13 Broncos were selected for Queensland. Um, so, yeah, really, really interesting. Before the Super League War, there was the Queensland Civil War in Rugby League. Wow. And can I just uh, quickly just... <clears throat> go back to the point about the uh, QE2 stadium and Lang Park or Suncorp Stadium. So those of you who are thinking, well, is that still around? Well, ANZ Stadium is obviously what we call now the, the Olympic Stadium in Sydney, but it was the, the name of of that stadium uh, for a while there, the QE2 Stadium in, in Brisbane. It's now, I think, called the Queensland Sport and Athletic Centre. So it's got a it's got a different name now, and and actually, just as a bit of a segue, it, it will be one of the stadiums considered uh, to be the Olympic Stadium for the Queensland for the Brisbane bid for the 2032 2032 Summer Olympics. So there you go. It could end up being an actual Olympic stadium for Brisbane uh, yet again, but obviously at the moment it's not used as an NRL. Uh, ground so a lot of people won't know about it so but yeah that's some great context there so obviously after their their great historic win obviously there was still some kind of uh infighting going on not that it started when when the broncos won in 92 it's been ongoing for a long long time uh this kind of tussle between uh 
you know, the the state level and the the local kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, first grade comp level uh, competition. So there you go. Um, so look, the season itself had a few uh, a few things going on there, uh, and and then we head to the finals. So look. Basically, the road to the grand final was uh, relatively easy for the Dragons, who who basically um, easily disposed of Canberra in the elimination final, their first elimination final, and then accounted for the minor premiers, the Bulldogs, who uh, and then setting up a week off for before their second consecutive grand final appearance. The Broncos, on the other hand, had to battle their way from fifth position. So after easily accounting for Manly in the elimination final, who had come fourth. Um, then they played the Raiders in the minor semifinal and uh, easily dis- disposed of them as well. And then they went up against the minor premiers, the Bulldogs. Uh, it was a tight game, this one, but they eventually won 23-16 to to set up that rematch against the Dragons. So for a second year running, we see Brisbane and St. George playing out the decider, even though they hadn't been, uh, you know, ended up, in the minor premiership season as one and two, uh, they ended up in the big dance. And so the Broncos this time, even though they weren't as red hot favorites, they did have some momentum coming into the final. As I said, they uh, had, and so, so did the dragons as well, although they had that week off. And that's also important because we were talking before about Brian Smith uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him again later, but you know, one of the issues with Brian Smith is that, um, and I guess potentially the question often comes up, if you have the week off before a grand final, and remember, though, this is what it used to be like with the top five set up. We don't have this anymore with the top eight set up where the, you only, the only time you get a week off is the week before the grand final. So as in before the penultimate game. So, uh, you know, basically week two of a four-week final series in the modern era is when you when the winners, the top two winners of the top four, uh, semi-finals that are played uh, have that week off. In this time, it was whoever won that um, major semi-final in week two had the week off, uh, skipping the preliminary final and then the grand final. So they went straight to the grand final. And uh, so in this case, you've got basically a St. George team that had a week off after two easy wins. Um, mm. and a Broncos team that had to win three games in a row where they started with two easy wins, uh, already went into the finals with uh, with a few wins on the trot anyway, and, and then got up against the minor premiers and had a tough battle but ended up victorious. So, you know, you could say that they were more battle-hardened going into this grand final, even after the fact that they were already kind of uh, still a star-studded team as much as the year before. Uh, but this year, both teams were one year wiser. And so this really sets up a really great kind of rematch. Uh, again, Broncos had the momentum, but um, the and the only loss that they had had in the previous six matches, I should say, another bit of a coincidence, maybe not, was to the Dragons. That was the only other loss that they had in uh, in the last six games, and it was in the final regular season round. But despite all this, Brisbane still remained favourites. So 
again, in the uh, during the season, it's proper. They were only really separated by one game, so there was no real reason to expect that even though Brisbane came fifth, that they were that much worse a team than the Dragons that year. Uh, you know, they still had the star-studded players, and the Dragons still had uh, their same players. So, um, so yeah, that's that was basically chapter two. Is there any other last points in, as we set up that '93 Grand Final, Tish? Oh, look, what I was going to say, uh, a couple of things that happened actually, like um, I think with Brisbane, yeah, all those distractions meant that they went from minor premiers to uh, scraping in at fifth, you know, fifth on the ladder, but they weren't that far behind the other teams as well. So I don't think it was, it was that, uh, you know, that, you know, disastrous sort of thing uh, for them. So um, that was kind of like the main thing that, uh, that was kind of the highlight also, uh, I was actually at the Manly Brisbane Mining Premiership uh, fourth and fifth playoff game. I think it was actually my very first game as a, a you know, watch, watching NRL, uh, well, you know, regular league. And um, at the time, obviously, I didn't support either teams, but I think my dad got tickets from somewhere. So um, I just, I just do, I remember Jack Elsquid uh, scoring a try for some reason. Um, oh, wow. But that was absolutely phenomenal. And um, yeah, look, before the grand final, um, uh, I think two weeks before, so I think it was in the minor uh, premiership, uh, you know, uh, Kieran Perkins was uh, a part of the Sydney's winning bid for the 2000 Olympics, which was announced. And I think he said uh, something like, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, Sydney can have the Olympics. Uh, we just want the premiership back to wow. Brisbane. Uh, and then that was, re- that was rebutted by Senator Graham Richardson, who is a tragic, um, you know, uh, St. George fan. And he said, look, um, I think he said something like, you know, we won't stop hearing about it in Parliament if they take the trophy again. Of course, Graham Richardson famously, uh, you know, the original backstabber to a Queenslander in Bob Hawke uh, just two years prior. So um, so kind of interesting how that all came around. So, yeah, so um, shall we talk about the grand final? Well, there you go. Yeah, well, that ends Chapter 3. It's Chapter 2. So now on to Chapter 3. So uh, chapter three is about rising action. So this is where we've set it up for the key kind of uh, battle, which is the 93 grand final. So the grand final rematch begins. So the the sides for the grand final replay were largely unchanged between the two years. So I'm going to quickly read them out to you. So Broncos had Julian O'Neill, Michael Hancock, Steve Renoff, Chris Johns, Willie Kahn, Walt, Kevin Walters, and Alan Langer, a captain. That was completely unchanged from 92. Um, uh, the the forwards were Terry Madison, Alan Can, Ter- Trevor Gilmeister, Mark Hone, Kerrod Walters, and Glenn Lazarus. And on the bench, we had Gavin Allen, Andrew G, John Plath, and Peter Ryan, and um, uh, Wayne Bennett there as the coach. And the Dragons had Mick Potter, this time Mick Potter as captain, uh, Ricky Walford, Mark Coyne, Graham Bradley, Ian Heron, Tony Smith and Noel Goldthorpe. So uh, Tony Smith is a difference there. And then on the, the forwards, we had Brad Mackay at lock, Scott Goulet, David Barnhill. And in the forwards, we had Tony Priddle, Jason Stevens, and Wayne Collins. On the bench, we had Nathan Brown, Phil Blake, Gordon Tallis, and Jeff Hardy. And obviously coached by Brian Smith. And uh, so the difference is uh, only one Bronco, Peter Ryan, had not played in the 1992 Grand Final and four of the Dragons 
had not played in that earlier grand final, which was Jason Stevens, Nathan Brown, Gordon Tallis, and Phil Blake. As you said earlier, Tishy was also Glenn Lazarus's fifth consecutive grand final appearance, having appeared in the previous years for Brisbane and also three years prior to that with Canberra. In this pre-match performance in the grand final, we had Tina Turner performing simply the best on stage at the Sydney Football Stadium alongside her saxophonist, US session musician, Timmy Cabello. A ground record crowd for the Sydney Football Stadium of 42,239 was on hand for the match. So, Tish, talk us through the first half of this grand final. Well, Dr. T, it was an amazing drama-filled first half, I've got to say, for the 1993 grand final. Uh, during the first few minutes of the game, St. George, prop, well, I think the first thing is like uh, when Lazarus took the first ball up and he got smashed by about three uh, St. George players right at the start. But then, look, moments later, I think, uh, yeah, Stevens, Jason Stevens had the ball, a very first grand final. I actually didn't realise that he was in this team because, like, um, now he, so he had a really long career. But, yeah, he, he absolutely got smashed as well. I think it was a um, Trevor Gilmaster tackle from memory. Um, and then, yeah, so – and then basically he started uh, – yeah, he had a broken thumb. He was bleeding really, really badly and um, – you know, the pain was really bad that, that you could see him shrieking and, uh, you know, sort of going down to his knees. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty like hard to what sort of thing. Um, during the first few moments, there was an, an incident as well where Mark Coyne, um, you know, sort of came limping out of a tackle. Um, you know, he was trying to walk it off like a swan. It was, it was, it was kind of hard to watch. So, the, you know, the first few minutes of this game, it was, it was intense in terms of, the physicality uh, of both teams. So great stuff. And then the Broncos, as in previous se- seasons, um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, as as like the 92 grand final, in the 21st minute, Kevin Walters threw the dummy, um, you know, at about 30 minutes out to uh, Chris Johns, who, who dived over and scored, uh, you know, a, a great try. Um, and then, yeah, that, that sort of uh, opened the scoring at, at six points of nil. Interestingly, uh, Julian O'Neill was actually doing the kicking duties, um, you know, in this grand final. The previous grand final was actually Terry Madison, um, but but that's what happened. Now, in the commentary, there were an interesting thing sort of happened there as well. This is one of those uh, moments where, um, you know, Ray Warren uh, actually asked to get some feedback off Steve Roach, and, and he had to say, hold the phone. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, and Christian scored. And then they actually brought that up that on the footy show a few weeks earlier, um, they had uh, a comedian actually do a routine where, you know, they were calling out every time Rabs had to say, hold the phone, um, you know, blocker or, or hold the phone, uh, you know, fatty and stuff like this. And, um, it actually became a thing. This is where, this is the genesis of, of the hold the phone cliche that we always see, uh, Ray Warren do so that was kind of interesting, but that's where it all developed. So that was kind of uh, kind of that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Historic for other reasons. <laughs> Historic for other reasons. But look, yeah, the other thing that they were mentioning is that look in the previous grand final, St George hit right back with the try, uh, but this time it wasn't to be because um, the Dragons and look just just you know it seemed like I think it was about maybe five or ten minutes later, 
Um, you know, they, they, they crossed again. This time it was Terry Madison, uh, you know, off an inside ball off the close range. And, uh, you know, Terry Madison was out for most of the season. He wasn't doing the, the goal kicking. Um, so, yeah, he scored that try. And uh, this time he actually had a headgear on the previous year. He didn't. And then, um, you know, I think Ray Warren made the comment that, um, you know, he's had his best year. Um, so his, his talent, uh, his hair might be receding, but his talent is not. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't know what happened there, but that's, that's what they were saying. Um, yeah, and look, uh, one of these very interesting things that happened is that, look, as the, as the half was sort of getting uh, towards the end of the half, um, you know, I think it got to the, like the final minute and, and the Dragons finally had position close to the line. And then, uh, yeah, they decided to, to take the penalty kick, um, you know, to, to get to 10 points to two uh, going into halftime. Uh, and I was just thinking about, you know, that that decision to go for a goal. Uh, I know there was only about a minute left, um, but they were sort of so far behind the Dragons. Um, I, uh, sorry, the Broncos. All the commentators were saying that they should take, the, you know, take the kick. But but I kind of feel that they had a missed opportunity there. Just you know, um, going in at ten points to two. I, I think it's okay going in at ten points to nil uh, if they didn't score. Um, but at least they would have put pressure on Brisbane right at the end. Like, and even if they had sort of, uh, I mean, if they'd scored a try, it would have been much better, right? But I don't know if the goal kick itself was actually the the, the smartest idea in the world. So. Um, that's how I saw the first half. Was there any anything about the first half that you saw that stood out there, uh, Doctor T? No, look, I think I think you've sort of summarised that well. I think the the key thing for me is that you know there was a weight. I would have to say there was a weight of expectation. I remember. Look, mm. there's different ways we could do this. We could look at, we can rewatch the match, or we can sort of uh, try to remember what we felt at the time and what we remembered at the time. And I remember watching this thinking, I really wanted St. George to win this one. I was, uh, I was definitely supporting uh, the Brian Smith way of doing things. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if this team of no names uh, actually ends up stopping this Broncos juggernaut. Uh, and it wasn't just because of the, the Queensland New South Wales kind of rivalry as well. One, not wanting the Queensland team to win again, but it was just, to me, to my mind, it was, uh, you know, could this... It, Dragons were definitely the underdogs, put it that way. And and to me, the feeling that I got in this match with with what happened during the 93 season and and the way that they kind of... Uh, they improved as a team. Really, they were a much improved team from the year before, the St. George Dragons. And they got to this grand final. And even though the Broncos were favourites, they weren't as much of favourites as they were the year before. And there was, I would say, in my mind, there was this weight of kind of not so much expectation, but anticipation that, you know, fingers crossed if we pull it all, if we, if they put it all together on the day and they perform when it counts, uh, it will really make a difference. They had a few new players coming in. So obviously there was a bit of turnover, a bit of young blood, new blood in a grand final context. So that's always a bit of a risk. So it wasn't a completely uh, identical side to the year before, um, and and then in that first minute, <laughs> their star prop, Jason Stevens, who had done very well that year in uh, in in terms of the premiership, and uh, you know stamped his authority as one of the leading props in the premiership, um, 
basically through uh, a, a freak injury pretty much puts them on the back foot from the get-go. And and to me, that was – it was like, oh. You know, from minute one, you had a uh, at this kind of moment where you think, oh, this is not good luck for the Dragons. And, and it kind of um, – I think it kind of continued that way. You know, just when I thought, oh, this is their chance. They need to get on the front foot. And the worst thing that could happen in a grand final in this context that we've set up for you in terms of uh, the Broncos, red hot, white hot, and, uh, you know, possibly repeating their historic performance and and creating history again of their own two two in a row. Um, You know, and then then what's the worst thing that can happen? your star prop gets injured in the first minute in a freak accident. And so that to me, it was, I remember at the time thinking this does not set a good tone. This is not a good omen for the dragons. And it kind of, uh, you know, it kind of felt that it was that way. I think they, you know, they were pretty much scoreless. I believe until sort of close to the end of that first half. Yeah. And and if I'm looking at the records, you know, it looks like yeah, Brisbane led 10-0 with 7 minutes uh, you know, of into the at the end of towards the end of that first half. And then uh, basically with a penalty um, to the Dragons towards the end, it ended up being a 10 to 2 uh, first half uh, scoreline. So, look, in that context, again, that was my recollection of mm. that Dragons, uh, you know, thinking here is a chance for them to, to you know, do something historic. And then and there are, they are the underdogs, but the last thing you want is the underdogs to get this kind of freak bad luck. And that's what it felt like. It felt like there was a bit of bad luck yeah. uh, plaguing the Dragons. And, uh, you know, like, as I'll, before we move on to the next chapter – Tish, now that I've just said that, <laughs> what does that does that colour your recollection of rewatching this uh, first half recently? Yeah, uh, it, it does because it, you kind of uh, reminded me something about that expectation. Like uh, they did, they seemed nervous. Can I say that they seemed like um, yes. you know they seemed very frantic throughout the whole game, sort of thing. So um, and you know they had some opportunities. Once again, there was a there was a beautiful break that uh, Brad McKay actually made. And, um, you know, they sort of, I think he passed it to Barnhill and then they try to flick pass for some reason. So they were trying to, they were trying to almost play the Bronco style of play a little bit. And, um, and I think even the commentators brought up, look, in, in previous games, they would have held on to the pass and, and would have, you know, but because it's a grand final, because of the pressure, they might've, you know, might've just overplayed their hand a little bit. And, you know, when you talk about expectation, there's something, uh, now, there was a few different sayings that people had around this time. You know, you got to lose one to win one. It was was kind of a common thing that a lot of people, uh, you know, believed. You know, taking the case of the, you know, of, of the Canberra Raiders, for example, who sort of, uh, well, actually, they won in the 80. Well, actually, no, the Panthers, just two years prior in 91, you know, they had lost to Canberra the prior year. And now, you know, it was kind of like the, you know, the return set where Canberra, uh, where they beat Canberra in the grand final. So I think the fact that now it's 92, 93, and it's the Broncos versus um, the Dragons again, you know, I think people kind of felt that maybe this will go similar to how, you know, the the Canberra Raiders-Panthers showdowns had went in previous years. So 
you know, it was kind of a, a lot of these type of sort of theories and, and things like that were sort of being spread around. Um, it was it was um, it was interesting. The final series in ninety two uh, versus the final series in ninety three was kind of kind of like the dragons had the reverse of what they had in the previous seasons, where you know they were the team that had the week off. They were the team that had the uh, you know that had a, a bit of a break, while the Broncos are the ones that had to had to sort of fight from underneath to get there. So it's just interesting how how like you know even though maybe a lot of people still had the Broncos that you know leading. A lot of people still felt this is going to be the Dragons' year simply because of, you know, history and a little bit about you know how the roles had sort of switched, but it all went wrong for the for the Dragons in the first half. And I think, you know, if you're in a grand final and you don't score in the first half, um, you have to think how am I, how are we going to score a try in the second half? And um, yeah, a fly on the wall to be in that dressing room, I think, for the Dragons at halftime, right? What would they have exactly. uh, discussed? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, and so that's a perfect segue into the next, uh, <laughs> in the next chapter, which is about that second half, the climax of this uh, saga. Uh, you know, the Broncos don't look back for a grand final double. So, you know, heading into the into that second half, you would expect that the the St George Dragons think, well, we need to do something now. We've we have been you know, it's 10-2, it's still within reach, but we haven't scored a try yet and we need to do something. And so what do they do? Well, they open the second half with a another penalty goal <laughs> to Ian Heron. So it's now 10-4, good buddy. Um, but, you know, it's still, you know, again, the Dragons did come out firing, according to in my recollection anyway, that they, they kept trying. Uh, but again, the best that they could get was another penalty and another penalty. So then it ended up being 10-6. And at this point, you're thinking, ah, now it's within striking distance. All they need is a try. And and really, um, it, it, it really came down to whoever scored that next try either was going to finish the game or give a bit or, or it could be a, a real you know, uh, charge to the finish if the Dragons were to do it. And unfortunately, it wasn't the Dragons. It was Willie Kahn mm. uh, who who scored that last try to put it beyond reach. Uh, and But he scored it in the 68th minute. So there was still, you know, if I remember, there was still a bit of time left. And I just, I just remember thinking, you know, yes, it's 14-6. But nowadays, we kind of look at an eight-point deficit and we think, you know, we've seen teams, <laughs> you know, uh, even in grand final situations, come back from greater deficits than that with 12 minutes to go. And so uh, it's still possible at this point, but I think the Dragons didn't really have, and we talk about this all the time, that X factor. Yeah, They didn't really have that, you know, had they had someone like a Benji Marshall or an Alan Langer or a, you know, Laurie Daly, someone who you know could take the game from the scruff of the neck and just deliver that killer blow, or even just give give that kind of uh, that that kind of um, that spark, you know. And they did have a player there in that lineup, Phil Blake, yes, on the bench, who who does have that kind of who who did at the time have that kind of uh, reputation as being that X factor. I just don't think, again, from my recollection, I don't think he had really carried that 
uh, uh, or, or executed on that ex- expectation and that reputation within this Dragons uh, side. So that was my recollection. It's like Phil Blake at his best was, you know, when he was with Manly or Souths was really when he was that X factor, not so much when he was with the Dragons. So, uh, again, uh, he was a bit of a journeyman and and I guess his better days were behind him. So that was my impression. Uh, Tish, now that you've had the benefit of looking at this game again recently, mm. what are your impressions of... Uh, you know, and I should add with that uh, before you continue, um, that ended up being a Broncos win 14 points to six. So they had scored three tries to nil. <laughs> uh, and, and if they had actually got all of their conversions, uh, they would have been, uh, what it would have been 18 points to six. So it would have looked a lot different on the score line than, uh, than it looked. And, uh, and yeah, the only other thing that we need to talk about, I guess, uh, or we can talk about it in the next one, is uh, what happened afterwards. But yeah, let's just talk about the game, and then we'll talk about the aftermath, the immediate aftermath in the next chapter. Um, what were your impressions of that? Uh, in, based on what I said, do you agree with that, or did you have a different impression as you were watching it? Yeah, you well, know, uh, as I was watching it, um, I did. I did notice. Uh, I mean, the commentators kind of brought this up when Phil Black came onto the field, um, and I think he came on to replace, it might have been perhaps Jeff Hardy. Um, yeah, there was an injury that the Dragons had, and what you call, oh, no, sorry, Tony Smith. That, that was all right. So Tony Smith, who coincidentally, now I don't know if we, Wikipedia's got this correct or not. He's actually the younger brother of Brian Smith, the coach. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, but anyway, so I think he did, yeah, uh, uh, he, there was a play that he got wrong somehow. It might have been a defensive relapse to score a try. So Phil Blake came on, and I think I think it was like, uh, you know, well, Smith has, ha- has had to bring on uh, Phil Blake maybe a little earlier than what he expected. So I think there was some incidences that kind of forced the hand of, of Brian Smith or seemingly, uh, you know, because maybe, you know, Phil Blake's one of these players where at that time of his career, um, you know, you, you kind of want to bring him on, um, you know, a bit later so he could sort of take advantage of like the slow, uh, slowness of the pack. Um, but maybe that their game plan was changed um, just just based on performances and injuries. Um, the other player that they kind of um, sort of highlighted on was a, was a young Gordon Tallis, and uh, Gordon Tallis, uh, you know, playing for the Dragons against the Broncos, kind of a very interesting type of thing. But you know, he kind of. Went on, um, you know, he, he looked aggressive, but obviously it was the start of his career a little bit. And, um, you know, probably didn't have that much impact as much as what he would later on to have. But then, you know, that, that's that X factor that you do talk about. And then, you know, in, in hindsight, looking at this Dragons team, as much as we wanted to see this fairy tale sort of come come true, they really didn't have, as you said, that X factor. That, you know, that player that you go to for the win, you know, the, the person that you could say, you know what, like, it's you know no matter you know no matter uh, how close it's getting towards the end we're still in it because we've got you know so and so in the team and um, you know I- I'm just going through some of the plays that the Dragons would have had in later years and you know I'm thinking about you know uh, you know I'm thinking about actually Anthony Mundine I don't know where Anthony Mundine was at this stage maybe he was uh, yet to play but I thought if they had a player like Anthony Mundine who ended up playing for um, you know, uh, the Dragons later, you know, in, in his career. Um, that type of X-Factor player that you 
they really it's really hard for oppositions to know what they're going to do. And you know, the guy that wants to be there at the end uh, for the win, you know, like as opposed to where it felt like, um, you know, Noel Goldthorpe was was a great halfback, but really uh, a really good organizer. You know, they really really had that running five eighth as the Broncos had with Kevin Walters. They didn't really have that sort of attacking five eighth that they could go to, and you know. Uh, a, you know, a, a sort of a, gra- a great bunch of guys, you know, some really, uh, some really like, you know, solid players, but nothing, nothing that was going to just be like, you know, they, they weren't going to be a team that's going to pull off an amazing play. And unfortunately, they were up against a team that was kind of full of it, you know, um, Julian O'Neill, Willie Kahn. I mean, some of these players kind of go, um, go, you know, sort of go away a little bit, like, you know, so you sort of think, oh, they just sort of blended. But they themselves, you know, were, were great players in their own right, um, you know, sort of thing. And they even had, um, you know, he sort of called the super sub the whole way during the game, John Plath. Uh, I don't really remember John Plath, but they kept, they called him the super sub, you know. Here comes the super sub, John Plath. And um, as I was actually, sort of, you know, doing research for this episode, I, I realised that, uh, you know, when the Broncos uh, had all their players going to origin, I think John Plath had actually kicked a few field goals and scored some winning tries in some of those games where they had to use their second string team uh, to get the victory for the Broncos. So they had match winners, 1-13, to 1-17 to 17 probably. You could make a case that each one of these players had some way of perhaps, uh, you know, uh, turning a result from a bad one into a good one um, because they all had that X factor about them. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on to book, uh, chapter five, which is fall in action. So now mm. that we've the Broncos winning the second premiership in a row, uh, you know they they the repeat victors. And look, after the match, Tina Turner presented this uh, the trophy, the Winfield Cup, to Alan Langer and joined in Brisbane's post game victory song. Uh, but despite being on the losing side, Brad Mackay, who was Dragon's Lock, uh, was chosen to be the Clive Churchill medalist as a man of the match, obviously, in the grand final. He was chosen by New South Wales Rugby League General Manager John Quayle, Don Ferner, and two St. George legends, John Raper and Dredge Gaznia, <laughs> with, which obviously raised the ire of, of the Queenslanders and the Brisbane Broncos, especially Queensland Premier, Wayne Goss questioning the decision. So we had politics mm. come into play here as well. Now, um, this whole thing about a player from the losing side winning the Clive Churchill medal, this isn't the first time that this that this had happened, and it was certainly hasn't been the last time that it's happened. It's happened many times, and almost every time it happens, there is a huge controversy because people think that, uh, you know, it, it – there's almost like an automatic automatic expectation that it should, you know, the Clive Churchill medalist, the best player on ground should come from the winning team. And as we all know, within a team game, that is just simply not always going to be the case, especially when there are close games. Now here, I guess the question is uh, now looking back, I remember at the time thinking, Oh, fair enough. I mean, it could be also that they gave it to him as a, as a reward uh, for that kind of style of player that he was. And remember, this is at a time when we had just come off the back of the Canberra uh, dominance in the early 90s. 
where Bradley Clyde had won, uh, you know, w- was kind of considered one of the best players in the game. And he was really renowned for being like a, uh, basically like a workhorse. And he revolutionized the, the lock position, I believe, at the time. And I think Brad Mackay was kind of uh, playing the lock forward position in the style of Bradley Clyde. And I think... To me, that was kind of uh, the reason why that kind of player was more likely to get the accolades at the time than uh, than uh, someone who was more flashy or whatever. Because I think those kinds of things were more respected in in close games. Uh, you know, at the time we we had just come off the eighties where where big defence wins big premierships. You know, and and we've only just explored now with the Broncos and their attacking brilliance. Uh, we've only just seen them win a premiership the year before. And now with a, a tighter game, with a well, you know, again, a Brian Smith coach team that was renowned for their defensive uh, prowess as well, um, managed to sort of close the gap with that Broncos team. So I think to me, if you put all that together, it makes sense that you would go for a defence-oriented player as a man of the match um and that's how i remembered it at the time i thought they could have easily have, have given it to a couple of other players but tish now that you've had the chance to kind of relook at it what what were your thoughts do you think brad mckay deserved that uh that accolade or were there others in the mix that should have been considered well look he had um a great game for the dragons he was the best on field for the dragons so certainly if you're just looking at from the Dragons' um, point of view, uh, you know, yeah, I, I definitely believe that he was he, he, he was the, their best candidate. Um, probably the situation that I have uh, a bit of an issue with him winning it this year, even though he's kind of one of my favorite players of all time, but I, but I don't really think he, he deserves the award. And, um, and, and the reason why is that, uh, look, with the man of the match, uh, you know, if um, you know, I, I do think players from the losing team are eligible to, to sort of win win it uh, as well. Uh, but I think you've got to look at sort of how the game flows because really the man of the match is a person who is uh, best on on the ground for the for, for both these teams, right? So you know, if a side loses forty points to nil, obviously somebody in the uh, in the in the team that lost played well for that team, but the reality is really had no impact in the game, right? And then if you get a game where the, the score at the end is 13-all uh, and then they kick a field goal uh, to make it 14 or something in, in golden point, then you can say that pretty much everybody in the losing team were just as good as all the people in the winning team. And, you know, you, you pretty much out of the whole lineup, you could sort of select a handful of players from both teams to win the man of the match. Um, in this particular game, the Dragons uh, did not cross the try line at all, <laughs> right? It was a very dominant performance from Brisbane. And, you know, I'd say if the game was closer, I, I think you could have given it to Brad. But I think the fact that they couldn't actually win, I, I think that uh, but they, they weren't, really weren't that close. Um, you know, the, 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 the goal, the lack of uh, precision from the Brisbane goal kickers versus the precision of Ian Heron kind of made the the scoreline a bit flattering for the Dragons uh, in reality. So, so I kind of feel that Brisbane were dominant and, 
you know, you could have given it to Alan Lager for, for organising everything. You could have given it to Kevin Walters for setting up the comp tries. You could have given it to Andrew G, even Willie Khan. You know, these are the play- people that actually made the match the match. And I think that's where I think with Brad McKay, although he played well, he's a great player. I just don't think for this particular thing, um, I think, and I don't, you don't want to say, but but I just feel that there was a, you know, as you, as you I didn't re- even realise that, that uh, we had, Two former dragons, um, and I think John Quayle did he uh, was he like a uh, an administrator for the dragons at one stage? Um, uh, he might have been. I'm not. I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like they probably should have had uh, you know maybe a, a Wally Lewis in there, maybe, maybe casting some votes. <laughs> non non Saint George dragons immortals, maybe. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I think that would have made sense, you know. So. Uh, yeah, just, just So who would you have picked? I'm putting you on the spot. If you know, you're king for the day, you get that final deciding vote. Not Brad Mackay, you're saying. Who would you have picked from the Broncos then? Okay, well look, maybe I'm a bit biased, but I would pick Glenn Lazarus. He he was phenomenal for both games. But I, I do remember he he was setting the foundation up and um, you know, uh like you know, he was inju- injuring plays left and right as well. So um <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, did he win the Clive Churchill Medal for? He might have won it when they when you know as a Melbourne in later on. So he I mo- think he won it later. Yeah, yeah. You're right. um, so so he so probably yeah. got it back. But yeah, but I definitely feel like he uh, he was he he was to me. I think he, what he contributed was was probably what what gave Brisbane that that foundation to 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 sort of score their tries from. All right, and just before we close this particular chapter, move on to the last one couple of quick points. So by retaining their title, Brisbane had actually become the first team in history to win a premiership from fifth spot. So we often talk about that. And, you know, they managed to do it. They were fifth uh, and they battled their way through the finals and and won convincingly in the end uh, every single game. Uh, So well done to them. Uh, Again, a historic uh, win from another perspective. And the other thing was it, it also, this match drew very strong ratings nationwide. So um, this was, you know, again, when ratings and, and obviously that led into the Super League war and all that stuff later. So the Broncos, again, the Broncos victories and, uh, and, and the ratings all kind of came together at a head a few years later. Um, all right. So chapter six, the final chapter, this is the resolution. And this is where we're going to talk about the Dragons being a team of misfits that almost stopped the uh, the brilliant Broncos. So, look, at the end of the day, uh, in my view, the Dragons of 92 were thoroughly beaten by a white-hot Broncos outfit. And the following year, they did get much closer, but ultimately they, again, failed to score. Uh, in this case, failed to score a single try compared to the Broncos' three tries in that 93 grand final. Um, given the improvement in the Dragons' outfit, who finished second on the ladder in 93 compared to the Broncos, who had finished fifth, uh, whereas in, in 92, both teams finished one and two respectively. Uh, Broncos obviously winning that minor premiership. This, I believe, could only be described uh, as a missed opportunity for the Dragons. So this is the the 93 Dragons I'm talking about. Um, Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that one of the key things that came out of this scenario, obviously, that that would have fueled uh, the the rivalry 
between uh, between these two teams going forward was uh, an infamous situation where Alan Langer was filmed. Uh, I, I don't know if he was uh, being escorted or carted carted around on people's shoulders, on the Broncos teammates' shoulders, I believe. But there was a, an infamous kind of uh, video footage of him singing St. George can't play, St. George can't play. I don't know if you, if you guys remember that. That really was one of the, the things that really kind of, uh, you know, it was a catalyst for a bit of acrimony between the two teams. It, uh, it showed that they wanted to rub, rub the salt into the wounds of Dragons fans. And uh, to me, it was like, you know, obviously a drunken langer <laughs> singing a, a song out of tune that he just invented. Uh, shouldn't really be too much concerned for people. This is just Alfie, Alfie having a bit of a drink. Um, but it certainly did, uh, did kind of cause a bit of a ruckus. And and no doubt uh, would have you know would have sparked a bit of a, a, a bit more of a rivalry and controversy at least in the minds of the Dragons fans. Tish, just on the St George can't play thing, uh, what do you think? Uh, what effect do you think that had on on the Dragons uh, in in future years, if if anything at all? I don't I don't think it had an impact. And um, in terms of off field inf- incidences, um, I think that area has certainly been an area that's been. Uh, uh, you know, uh, has sort of uh, expanded in, in horrible ways um, since since this incident here. So I, I don't think you should have. I mean, uh, affected it. At the end, of the, the the winners do get the spoils, and I think that um, obviously, you know, the Broncos they kind of were uh, in in many ways they were known for their sort of uh, uh, sort of party attitude at the end of the grand final, right? I think even even the Ferrari they had had a big one, so. Look, I think I think at the end of the day, it's just part of part of winning. Um, you know, you can say what you like, and the reality is, um, you know, this is something that uh, we kind of know from doing the show, but it's not something that we get talk- that gets talked about a lot in rugby league. So I don't, I don't think there's any sort of legacy to that at all. All right, and the next thing I wanted to ask was Brian Smith. Mm. So we've alluded to him a few times, and I guess the question is, was this a Brian Smith failure? What do you think? Um. Look, I think not. I think the Brian Smith has become the poster person, shall we say, um, of or the poster coach of the you know can't can't get it done sort of coach. You know, we kind of um, you know we you know even last year with well with you know sort of Ivan Cleary losing a few now and things like that, people were sort of comparing him and you know there are other coaches that sort of get compared to Brian Smith. You know, is he another Brian Smith or something like this? You know, that kind of thing or. You know, he's kind of known as the as the grand final failure coach. But then I also look at that team that the Dragons had and the roster they had, and <laughs> you know, it's you know I, I know we call this almost fairy tale because you know it was a fairy tale. But I think part of the fairy tale is that I think in both games, um, I think there's a real strong case to say that the Dragons were were I suppose um, you know it was a fairy tale to see them in the grand final with the roster they had. Mm, I mean. Yeah. They, as you said, there was no X factor that they had in their team. Um, you know, they sort of had a, a, a few play personnel changes. They had more personnel changes than what the Broncos did in the prior year. So that gives you an idea of, you know, they kind of had to battle a, a lot, a lot harder to sort of get there. And I think that that should be sort of noted. And I think that's the thing about Brian Smith and his teams. I think 
more often than not, you, you sort of look at their lineups and, you know, he's able to get a uh, really good value out of his, out of his team. And they, all of his teams are going to be underdogs going into grand finals. I feel like that's, that's what kind of happened because he's great at sort of molding a team together out of a team of um, players that, that perhaps don't have the names. Um, you know, kind of a, a modern day version of, um, of that writer for the Herald, I forgot his name, uh, Roy Masters a little bit, you know. Uh, the ability to, to get um, great performances out of players that, you know, other other coaches don't don't seem to be able to. Another former Dragons coach, I believe, was Roy Masters. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, but look, yeah, I th- I'd have to agree with you there, Tish. I think... Uh, I think unfairly Brian Smith, uh, and especially in these two years, uh, set up had a reputation set up for kind of failure at this level. But when you really look at you know the players that he had in front of him, uh, the players on his roster at all, and and all other future occasions where he made he made uh, he you know he got teams to a grand final but was unsuccessful. Um, in all those situations, even if they had played brilliantly all year. There was still this kind of, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, his th- there's this kind of argument that he, his team didn't necessarily, you know, shouldn't have been entitled to even get there. And so even just getting there, as you said, was almost their, their fairy tale. Um, they, w- they shouldn't have expected to get much further, not against a, a brilliant team like the Broncos. So, um, that's one way to look at it. But the other way that people will look at it is, of course, you know, once you've had a few opportunities, at some point you've got to, you know, you've got to convert your brilliance and innovative mind and innovations in training and coaching. You've got to convert that to results at some point. And I think this is why people will still think uh, in this occasion uh, that, you know, especially in the 93 situation, that there was a missed opportunity. The fact that you couldn't get a team uh, you know, you, you couldn't get a team to cross the Broncos line at all in the grand final when they were not even renowned for being great defensively at that time tells you something, I think. So I think there's still a question mark in terms of legacy. Um, but let's look at the positive side. So there, there are positives that have come out of this for the Dragons. After the, this 92-93 uh, almost fairy tale, they managed to, you know, continue a little bit of their success, Not not exactly... Uh, straight away, but you know they reached two out of the next six grand finals. Uh, however, they failed to win either time. So they, um, you know, in ninety ninety six, uh, they lost twenty to eight to Manly, and they were coached by David Waite at the time. And in ninety nine, in their first year as a joint venture with the Illawarra Steelers, they lost a famous grand final to the Melbourne Storm twenty to eighteen, and they were also coached by David Waite, but Andrew Farrer as well. So the positives were it's not like as if this uh, this 92-93 Dragons era, um, you know, uh, thwarted their development as a club. It didn't sort of stop them. It didn't lead to great immediate success, but it led to, you know, some opportunities in the near future. So I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, the, they they kind of set themselves up at the time of of being as being a bunch of underdogs that are able to get to the big dance and uh, and again in both the ninety six and ninety nine situations 
objectively, when you look at it on paper, you would think and you would understand why they lost to the Manly and the Melbourne teams, respectively. Satish, uh, the positives for you, uh, do you, before we finish off, do you think, uh, do you agree with what I've mentioned in terms of the immediate kind of impact on the Dragons as a club? Yeah, I think they had a few good years. Um, almost, uh, unfortunately, I don't think Brian Smith was coach uh, for all those times as well, as you, as you quite mentioned as well. But it did set them on a path, and I know they merges sort of came shortly thereafter as well, but, but I think part of it is also, uh, you know, uh, reasons that were sort of a bit beyond um, what was happening at the Dragons and more what was happening with Rugby League. Um, but, yeah, look, I think also that. And, and you know, the, you know players like Mark Coyne and, uh, you know, Brad Mackay, you know, sort of, you know, that they, they kind of became, dra- you know, Dragons great in this era as well. So, um, you know, so, so that, I think it did, was a bit of a launching pad. You know, you look, look at young Gordon Tallis, Jason Stevens. Um, I don't think Nathan Brown was uh, quite in the game, but he was definitely uh, in a part of uh, their roster this year, you know, 92, so 92 and 94, I should say. So, you know, they kind of, uh, it was kind of the bursting of some, some really good players. So I think that's got to be commended. And, um, you know, Brian Smith, he's kind of the, um, you know, he's kind of that mould of, you know, innovative coach, whereas Wayne Bennett's got that sort of people management type style as well, right? So you've got the, the strat- strategist versus the versus the, the man manager and the man manager sort of was able to win at the end of the day. So so that kind of is that is that sort of thing. So I think from a short short view, it, it's going to, you know, obviously they did have a bit of a legacy. Um, look, I think the long view um, of... Of what of how this team is going to be remembered, they were a great team, and this is kind of why we are doing this series because there's going to be a lot of teams that are like the '92 slash '93 Dragons that were great, that did achieve things, but they're going to be overshadowed because they didn't win the big one. And I think you know this lineup is a little like that. You know, for the roster they had and the achievements they made, I I, I really believe that they are a great team in that way. So. Um, you know, but they won't be remembered of that because, unfortunately, you know, the Broncos, um, the 92-93 games, you know, the, their teams were historic. So, and usually when you have an historic team achieving something, uh, it kind of, uh, people kind of forget who they played. Um, you know, we all kind of know that the South Sydney play, won the 1908 season, but we kind of can't remember who came second, right? So... Um, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, St. George's 11 grand finals. Um, well, we know they won the 11, but who do they play in those grand finals? We, we, we don't remember those teams, right? So, and I think, unfortunately for the Dragons, even though they were such a great team for their era, I think, um, you know, they're, they're probably just going to be known as um, the other team <laughs> um, <laughs> because, because of the, um, you know, and... and Look, that's that's just unfortunate. I feel like in this situation, I mean, it's I, I can't blame Brisbane. It's just that, you know, it was such a historic thing for a Queensland team uh, to actually win at that time the New South Wales Rugby League, and really this is kind of, you know, the very. I mean, I know Canberra won um, prior prior to the Broncos, but those two teams kind of set the foundation of what we now have today, which is the National Rugby League and expanding the game. Uh, a little bit. I think the Broncos and, and the Raiders do need to be credited for that. So I think the fact that this, you know, that becoming up a, a you know, it's kind of like a, 
a great team, like a good team that's, you know, uh, being compared to a, a, a team that sort of changed the mould of rugby league a little bit. So, yeah, so unfortunately, I don't think they're going to be remembered too highly, but, you know, the Rugby League Republic certainly remembers the 92 93 Dragons. <laughs> That's right. Well, on that note, I'm going to actually uh, give my very quick view and summary of how history will judge this team. So, look, in my view, the 92 93 Dragons are going to be seen as a team that probably didn't deserve on paper to be in a grand final, let alone be relatively competitive against that white-hot Broncos team, Brisbane Broncos team. The legacy of Brian Smith as a coach that was uh, always, uh, that was capable of taking a ragtag bunch of players with limited representative experience and forming a a formidable team that could match it against one of the most star-studded teams of all time, uh, to me, is a reminder that uh, of the possibilities that this greatest game of all rugby league can offer, which is that sometimes, not always, sometimes you can form a champion team who is able to compete against a team of champions, even if you have a ragtag bunch of no-name players. So that, to me, is my sort of final take on this, is that, look, even though they weren't really successful, they did get to a point where it sort of showed what can happen if uh, if you take someone with uh, the strategic mind of someone like a Brian Smith and uh, form that team and over time you could match it against these uh, these bigger teams as well. And uh, look, that's the way I think history will judge them. Uh, quite, you know, not game-changing, <laughs> definitely, but definitely, as you said, but, but certainly as... Uh, well, as we like to say, it was almost a fairy tale. They almost got there. It would have been an incredible, incredible fairy tale if they did get there in the end, especially in 93, after what happened in 92. But it wasn't to be. And I guess there are some lessons that any coach can take from w- the way uh, Brian Smith sort of uh, led that team into that second grand final. So, look, that's it for me. Tish, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, um, a great story, the Dragons, uh, but like all stories, they need to come to an end. (laughs) As does this podcast, (laughs) finally. Thank you very much. All right, so that is the wrap-up from Tish, none other than Tish, of course. Um, Thank you very much, Tish, and and hopefully you guys enjoyed this look back at the 92-93 St. George Dragons, uh, and we'll have plenty more of these almost fairy tales in the near future. So, Uh, With that, let's just uh, wrap this one up. So, Tish, over to you to uh, draw the line in the sand and wrap this one up. Well, I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening to this show. I'd like to uh, thank you, Dr. T, for all that amazing research and putting uh, a lot of the notes together. Um, Yeah, don't forget to hit us up on Facebook and all of our socials um, and uh, head over to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, um, you know, and uh, download all all the other episodes. So, Um, Your support is always appreciated. But, look, that's all for this episode of the Rugby League Republic. We're your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. Join us next time on the Rugby League Republic. Bye for now.